from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with J. Elena Palmer on February 4, 2019. J. Elena is the author of Personal Path, Practical Feet, which is a collection of essays that capture J. Elena's spiritual journey via everyday experiences. She reads a number of essays in the interview. I started the interview by asking J. Elena where she grew up. And what was religious life like growing up? I grew up in a small town in Indiana in the United States, although I live in Canada now, my, all my growing up years and were there. So my family lived in a small town in Indiana, actually several, through my high school years. And then after that, I sprouted wings and left. And that's a whole other story. My family was Jewish. My mother grew up in an Orthodox Jewish family. Her parents were immigrants from Russia and came to the United States through Ellis Island and very, very dramatic and uh, extreme circumstances brought them here or there to the U.S. And my father's family was more, uh, probably think of them as secular Jews. They were observant on a few holy days and believed in the uh, the general principles, but not not super observant. Now, that's interesting, Jelena, because what social context with an, with an Orthodox Jew be interacting with a secular Jew? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's pre-war time, Evansville, Indiana, and they just they, uh, they right. met. They actually they met on a blind date, and they were not each other's date. It was a double blind date, and they were each the other person's date. But my father said love at first sight to my mom within an hour of meeting, saying you're the woman I'm going to marry someday, and you know fate had his hand, and from there on that forward. And who moved in which direction? They actually met pretty much in the middle. One thing you have to think about for the moment anyway is small town Indiana did not have a lot of Jews. In fact, I was the only Jewish girl in my class most of the time I was growing up. My Jewish education was what my parents could cobble together with a few other Jewish families. They would bring in a rabbi from a nearby rabbinical school for the holy days. The rest of the time we would all meet, all 10 or 12 of us from all ages in the church of a local Quaker community, congregation. And they just they just tried to give us a sense of Judaism, even though there wasn't a lot of Jews around us. My mother did not keep kosher except when her parents came to visit. And then then she had the second set of dishes and second set of menus and everything. They kind of compromised. And I guess that's maybe part of what made their such a happy marriage. How did that spiritual path growing up lead you to the Baha'i faith? Well, as many of us might say about ourselves, it wasn't necessarily a linear or straight or even for that matter, a short path. I identified as a Jew until literally one day as a university student some years later, I, I went to Michigan State University and I was back visiting my parents around the time of Hanukkah. I found myself feeling so estranged from the Jewish practice and ritual that I just couldn't be present. I mean, looking back on it, it was probably very rude, but it's just where I was with my own self at the time. And then the next evening, the same thing happened. I just didn't want to be around the Jewish practices. I just felt alienated from them. I didn't find it fit me. It wasn't my personal truth. I told my parents I didn't want to be Jewish anymore, not in a rebellious sense, but in a self-discovery sense. And I set out on a journey that took me literally 10 years. Describe that journey for us. Maybe because I was leaving a religious tradition what I was looking for, not necessarily, in fact, probably not within a religion, I was looking for something I could believe in. I was looking for people whose vision of the future mapped mine, people I could roll up my sleeves and go to work with. I was looking for people who, whose spiritual or moral compass was somewhere aligned with mine. I was looking for my people and a body of ideas, and mostly not within religion. I studied philosophies. I studied the great atheists of Europe, particularly the German atheists. I don't know why, but for some reason I got interested in, in atheism within Germany. I studied existentialism. I was looking for authenticity, nihilism, political structures, economics, social activism, 
I read a lot of Dickens to learn about social commentary. I read the theater of the absurd to see how all these ideas are expressed through the arts. I went to personal development workshops from LifeSpring to Esto. I was just what we would now call maybe a tripster. I just kind of tried everything on. And eventually, within a 10-year period, meeting a Baha'i, studying the faith, and saying, this is my truth. Yeah, if you could elaborate on that aspect, that'd be good. Well, I was living in Boston. I'd gone to Boston, actually, just to visit a friend and ended up staying for several months because I had an opportunity to live in a, I told you I was a tripster, to live in a Sproutarian Health Institute. And there I learned a lot about whole foods and natural healing and all sorts of things. And there was a lady who worked there. She was in charge of the Sprout Room. Her name is Gracie. And she was very different from the other people who worked there. There was something about Gracie. I really couldn't quite put my finger on it, but I knew she, I knew she knew something. At some point, I discovered that she was a Baha'i. And that was the first time I'd ever heard the word Baha'i. And I can't say I was particularly interested in it, but she left in me something that was growing in me, such that a few years later, now in Eugene, Oregon, I met another Baha'i, my second Baha'i. And when that person, a lady named Jan, said to me that she was a Baha'i, I said, oh, I've heard of that. That's all about unity. So that's the only thing that I remember from what Gracie had told me, that Jan realized that I was somebody who was receptive, who was curious, and she took me by the hand, literally and, and metaphorically, and exposed to me all sorts of uh, Baha'i people, Baha'i writings, Baha'i principles. Uh, I went to the events that we would call firesides, was just informal gatherings of people who are uh, learning about something related to the Baha'i faith or just to exchange ideas. And the more I read and the more I, I visited, I decided this is what I wanted. One day I phoned Jan and I said, I want to be a Baha'i. Hurry up. Get over here before I change my mind. And so she dashed across. By then, we were both in Portland, Oregon. She dashed across town and you know, was there during my moment of personal commitment. And that was in 1980. And, and it's all been forward from there. So yeah. I'm talking with Jelena Palmer educator and newspaper columnist and author of the book, Personal Path and Practical Feet. Jaylena, so let's talk about this work. This is a uh, collection of essays and represents 10 years as a newspaper columnist. And I guess my question is, over those 10 years, has your perceptions changed? And if so, is it reflected in the essays? Actually, yes. You know, nobody learns more than the teacher. Nobody learns more than the writer. And the more I wrote the essays for this book and, and before that for the newspaper column, which I, I need to link the two for you in just a moment, the more I wrote, the more I investigated, the more I thought, the more I reflected, the more I tied things together. It certainly taught me a great deal. If there's any overarching theme of the book, it's really that our physical life mirrors the, the metaphysical life, that the physical is a reflection of the spiritual and that just became more and more evident to me as I did my work. Now, I think I need to back up a moment, though, and also kind of link the column to the book, because the column is really became the, the seed of the book in, in a rather unexpected way. I'm a person who likes to say yes. And one day out of nowhere, at least nowhere to me, I got an email from the local spiritual assembly of the Baha'is of Guelph. And the local spiritual assemblies in the Baha'i faith are nine individuals elected by the Baha'is in their community, just sort of, you know, to oversee or to administer the practical affairs of their community. As a body, they sent me an email asking if I would contribute to a column in their local newspaper, Guelph, Ontario. And Guelph's a, a, a mid-sized city with a large university. And because I like to say yes, I said yes. And next thing I knew, for what turned out to be an eight-year period before the book, I was one of six people who rotated a column in the newspaper that the newspaper called Personal Journey. And the purpose of it was to allow people from various faith communities or no faith community to reflect on something that they were learning in life. So for me, it was always a Baha'i perspective. So for eight years, I wrote that column on behalf of the Baha'is of Guelph. And then at some point, again, with another portion of this, of this interview, perhaps we can talk about, if you wish, how that went from the newspaper column to a book. I do. But before we do that, were you writing before then? And, and did this local spiritual assembly know that you were writing? 
Well, I was writing, but not in such an organized way. It's really funny because, you know, in so many ways, Warren, and this may sound odd because of all my work in newspapers and I've done other columns for in other cities and the book and all. In many ways, I don't think of myself as a writer. I think of myself as a person who writes. And I don't mean to be sort of splitting hairs on, you know, just the turn of the phrase there. But I think it's not so much that I write all the time as I'm, I like writing as a way to express some ideas, as a way to share ideas, and quite frankly, as a way to serve the Baha'i faith, because I'd, I'd like to think that I'm in service when I write these ideas in hopes that other people will read them, they resonate, and start conversations about the ideas in them. So I think of myself as one who writes when there's something that needs that, that I feel I'm the one who can write it. Does that make any sense at all? Yes, it does. And so the tie to the book. Okay, well, the tie to the book is because I'm a person who likes to say yes, that's a key part of this whole story. I was at a writer's workshop in near Flint, Michigan. There's a Baha'i-owned conference center, retreat center called The Well, and that uh, you and perhaps a few of your listeners have heard about. I don't know. But anyway, I was at a writer's workshop there, and unbeknownst to me ahead of time, one of the people who was conducting the workshop was the manager of the Baha'i Publishing Trust in Wilmette, Illinois. And this is the organization on behalf of the Baha'is of the United States that sees after publishing and distribution of, of books and a number of other items, all sorts of media, it could be music and films and so forth. I didn't know this beforehand, but Tim, that is the manager, had, through a mutual friend, seen some of my columns online. He went there knowing that he was going to meet me and to invite me to write a book in a similar style, not just take the columns and put them in a book and say, these are the published columns, but in a similar style, the personal reflective essay. When he invited me to do this, I cried for a couple of minutes, and then I was when I caught, caught my breath again, I said, yes, of course, I would love to. I'd be honored. And then later on, I figured out how to do it. But my first impulse was, wow, if they want me to write a book, I'd love to write that book. So I'm speaking with Jelena Palmer, educator and newspaper columnist, and we're talking about her latest published work called Personal Path, Practical Feet. And so this is a collection of, would you say, personal essays? Yes, I call them personal essays, although I've had a few readers say they're not essays. These are short stories. So look at it either way. Right. So why the title Personal Path, Practical Feet? Well, it's a bit of a restatement of a phrase that's familiar to many of the Baha'is. Baha'is, whether or not they know the origin of the statement, are used to hearing the phrase used, mystical path, practical feet, or spiritual path, practical feet. We see this in our in our writings. It, it actually originally got, went back to uh, Dr. David Jordan, who was the founder of, of Stanford University, who met Abdu'l-Bahá when he was traveling the United States. Now, for clarification, Abdu'l-Bahá is the son of Baha'u'lláh, the founder of the Baha'i faith. And Abdu'l-Bahá made an amazing trip. Everybody should learn more about how he did this trip to uh, the United States and Canada. And during that, he met David Starr, who said, this is a man who treads the mystic path with practical feet. So I just picked up on that phrase, and I thought, it's not just a mystical path or a spiritual path, but it's very personal. This is me thinking out loud when somebody reads the book. They're so kind of invited into my head to see how I reflect on things. How do I notice things? How do I learn from things? Who do I learn from? So I made it very personal, but it's practical because everything in the book actually happened and there are real ways that I tried to apply what I learned to everyday real life. So although it's got this spiritual, this mystical background to it, it's me as a person making my way through life and trying to apply what I learned. What do you hope the reader will get out of reading these essays or stories? I hope the reader will engage in a conversation with themselves, as well as perhaps with me as somebody out there they can without ever meeting face-to-face, -face, they can bounce ideas off of me. And in their self-conversation, will say, hmm, what if that happened to me? What if somebody bought me a cup of coffee, random act of kindness at a coffee shop? What would that teach me about generosity? What if a neighbor were to comment 
on the hydrangeas in my garden and they seem to look better here than after I transplanted them. What does that teach me about being in the right place and, and about nurturing and so forth? And there's, there are hundred examples I could give because there's a hundred essays, but I'm hoping a reader will take each of these to their heart and think, what if this were me? Have I had a similar situation? What can I learn from it? I'm speaking with Jelena Palmer, educator and newspaper columnist and the author of Personal Path, Practical Feet. You've written a number of articles or essays on the website BahaiTeachings.org. Can you tell folks something about that website? I'd be happy to. And also, for I'd like to give a plug that people who listen to your uh, Baha'i perspectives and hear what you and I are talking about right now. We'll also go back a couple years to where you interviewed David Langness because I've listened to your interview with him. Unfortunately, it got cut short because, as I recall, he had a power failure in the middle of it. <laughs> but he really does a beautiful job of where this whole thing come from. But from my perspective as, as a contributor, BahaiTeachings.org is a website that's privately run. It's nothing official within the body of the Baha'i faith. It doesn't come out of our headquarters. It's just some amazing people who every day publish two or more essays written by me or any of another hundred or so contributors on anything that is reflective of how we think, what we learned, what we're researching, what we've experienced, what we want to say about our own experience in the Baha'i faith. Some of the contributors are very academic and scholarly, and they've done amazing factual research, and they help us learn things about history and geography and theology and cultural context. Others are more like me, where we reflect on personal life. Some will talk about an experience they had, but, but may have been difficult, but how they got through it. So there's a, there's a real array of essays. Some of them are also translated to Spanish, which is pretty neat, too. So every day they come up with two or more. They also do some podcasts. They have some music. There's one person who interviews artists and puts a transcript on her contribution to the website. The other thing that's nice about it is it has a search function. So say you wanted to find what Baha'is at that site have written about, oh, I don't know, say Christmas. I'm mentioning that because that's the one I've written about. Then you could just do a search and you'll find half dozen essays over the years on that site. Somebody's written about Christmas or climate change or welfare of animals or whatever's the subject you want to research. And do you have a website of your own where people can go to to learn more about your writing? Well, actually, I, I have several. I'm going to give an address, but I need to explain sort of how it relates to the story I let off about the High Publishing Trust publishing the book, because there's another piece of, this, of the story that maybe I need to infill now. I wrote the book, and the Publishing Trust sent it off for what's called National Review. And those are people who, on behalf of the Publishing Trust, reviews all manuscripts to make sure that all references to Baha'i writings and principles are both accurate and dignified. And because my book has so many quotations in it and so much content about the Baha'i faith and others, I should mention, too, there's many other faiths are also quoted in there. It took over a year for that to happen. When it came back to me, I made a few revisions, nothing major, but it added up to more and more time piling up. One day I got a phone call from Tim from the Baha'i Publishing Trust, recognizing that we'd had a lot of delays. And he said that he'd be about another year at this point before they would get serious about my book. He gave me a choice. The choice was to continue waiting. We had a contract and he wanted the book. He would pass it on to another publisher who was interested and he had one in mind, or I could take it on as self-publishing, in which case they would still support it through marketing and distribution. And that's what I chose. So it took another year and a half but the book eventually did get published, and the website for the publishing company I started to do this is the address I'll give you now. And it's a bit of a pun, so I, I'm going to say it, but I also have to spell it. It's called piecebypiece-publishing.com. And the first piece is P-E-A-C-E by piece, P-I-E-C-E, hyphen publishing.com. And do you have another Another oh, yeah. site? You said I you do. had several, I think. Yeah, I do. As you know, when you and I chit-chatted just before we started the interview, my name is unusual. Therefore, it wasn't hard for me to get the website, jelena.org. So I have that. And I don't do a lot with it, but I do occasional blog postings and announcements. 
I also have website related to my consulting business, but I don't do a lot with that anymore either. I'm, I'm sort of 95% retired right now, but that's palmerjworks.com. That may interest people only because it has in there a little bit of background about my work as, as a writer, a business consultant, and as an adult instructor and curriculum designer for adult learners. So there may be just some generic pieces in there that might interest someone. And then my husband and I have twopalmers.org, which is where we put photographs from our trips. <laughs> and so if I want to see some trap, we just came back from Ethiopia. So if you want to see pictures of Ethiopia, by all means, go look at twopalmers.org. So I'm speaking with Jelena Palmer, educator and newspaper columnist and author of Personal Path, Practical Feet. I had asked you to prepare some excerpts to read on the interview. Why don't we start with the first one that you have selected? Well, Warren, I need your help. We're going to play a little game, okay? Dear listeners, Warren doesn't know I'm doing this. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to put you on the spot. It's just that I couldn't decide. So what I did is I picked one essay for each chapter. I'm going to ask you to pick the chapter, one through nine. And you can do it by number, or I can tell you the name of the chapters, and you can pick one. All right. Let's do the names of the chapters. Okay. Home and garden, Mm -hmm. in the community, Mm -hmm. on the job, Mm -hmm. health and recreation, Mm -hmm. arts and culture, nature and the environment, education, relationships, and travel. Each of those chapters have 11 essays in them. The 100th essay is a reflection on the experience of writing the book. So you can pick one of those, and then I've picked which essay in each one that I would read for you. All right. So how about on the job? Okay, what do you got let me just turn it. That's on page 72. Okay, this essay is called Sometimes Time Flies and Sometimes It Creeps. Is there anything more subjective than time? I was leaving my workplace this afternoon when I heard one person say, wow, this day really flew by. And another person said, wow, I didn't think this day would ever end. The perception of time varies not only among individuals, but also with the tasks being performed. Sometimes I look at the clock and wonder where the day went. Other times it seems like the clock must be broken. Otherwise, why would it say that only a few minutes have passed since the last time I checked? Trying to come up with an explanation for this, I think it is related to satisfaction with the work. When I feel ownership over what I am doing, When I am immersed both intellectually and emotionally, I am more fulfilled and time never stalls. When my work connects to a larger vision and everyone is cooperative and amiable, time passes well. Physicists could give us an explanation of time in a physical sense, even write equations proving it. But the experience is defined by us. It goes quickly when we are having fun, are being creative, are enthused, or are engaged. And it goes slowly when distractions or negativity take us off course. We feel lost or confused, or we experience disunity. German philosopher Immanuel Kant noted the subjectivity of time when he wrote, Time is not something objective. It is neither substance nor accident nor relation, but a subjective condition, necessary owing to the nature of the human mind. Whether we perceive time as fast or slow, it doesn't wait for us. If there's a due date for an assignment or project, it will arrive. As when a child throws a ball and shouts, ready or not, here it comes, much of what we are working on has urgency to it. This is true of the workplace and is true about the world at large. Given the state of our environment and the already present impact of climate change, time doesn't wait. Immediate action is needed and delays are devastating as well as costly. Wherever people are starving, time doesn't wait. One more day without sufficient food may be the day that their health takes a turn that cannot be reversed. Wherever there is war, every day brings death, destruction, and the intensification of emotions. There are children who have never known peace or brotherhood with other people, and for them, time doesn't wait. Shogi Effendi, in addressing the Baha'is about their role in bringing unity, justice, peace, and community to the world wrote, the sands are indeed running out. The distractions, temptations, and pitfalls that might interfere with its consummation are many and varied. Each day when we wake, we begin with opportunities. 
And then when we prepare for sleep and reflect on how the day went, we're fortunate when we can say, time passed well, and I'm happy with how I live today. We know that this life is finite and every day has 24 hours. What we put into those hours, what we take from them, is where we exercise our free will. Whatever time feels like, we have the choice to use it well or not. So you had mentioned the person Shoghi Effendi. Shoghi Effendi is the grandson of Abdu'l-Bahá, Abdu'l-Bahá being the son of, of Baha'u'lláh, the founder of the Baha'i faith. Shoghi Effendi is typically referred to by Baha'is as the guardian. He was named by Abdu'l-Bahá and his will as the one to carry on the work and the leadership of the Baha'i faith after the passing of Abdu'l-Bahá. And he also passed away in 1957. That's right. And after a period of a few years in the first election took place of, the, of our international leadership, the Universal House of Justice, in 1963 in Haifa, Israel. So I'm speaking with Jelena Palmer, educator and newspaper columnist. She was just reading an excerpt from her book of essays called Personal Path, Practical Feet. Jelena had given me a list of chapters to select from, and I just selected one from On the Job. You know, it was interesting, on that essay you just read, there was a reference to climate change, which reminded me of, uh, I think you have a chapter on nature and the environment, and then you also mentioned the fact that people are, you know, in the world are starving, and then there's a chapter on health and recreation. I think I'd like to see if you could read an essay from Nature and the Environment. Okay, I'd be very happy to. And um, within it is a quotation from an organization called the Baha'i International Community. Let me just mention now that this is a a body that has its international headquarters in Switzerland, but also in New York and with an office also in, actually I just saw in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, and a few others around the world. And they engage on behalf of the Baha'is of the world in public discourse, in representing us at various meetings, very much a body of thought as well as dialogue. So there's going to be a quotation of them within this essay. There's also going to be a quotation from the Universal House of Justice, which is our international leadership in Haifa, Israel, where our world headquarters is. Okay, this essay is called When Someone Litters. Walking through an arboretum, I saw a youth toss a plastic water bottle into the bush. I picked it up, ran to him, and asked him to reconsider what he had done. I told him that when I see people litter, I can almost hear Mother Earth crying out in pain from the assault. He stared at me, seeming to think I was a weird lady, and reluctantly put the bottle back in his day pack. I hope that he later thinks about this brief encounter and changes his attitude toward littering. At the very least, I rescued a water bottle. At the most, I may have influenced change in one person. And that's where it all begins, with one person, each person. We know about the interdependency among all people, and we have a similar relationship with our planet. It depends on us as we depend on it. It feeds us as we feed it. It nurtures us as we nurture it. The outer physical world will become healthier when we ourselves become healthier, both physically and emotionally. And the reverse is true. The connection between ourselves and our creator can be found in all the major religions and many other unaffiliated bodies of thought. The Baha'i International Community emphasized this point in the following passage. The grandeur and diversity of the natural world are purposeful reflections of the majesty and bounty of God. There follows an implicit understanding that nature is to be respected and protected as a divine trust for which we are answerable. Given the broad recognition of our relationship and responsibility for taking care of the natural environment, what's stopping us from taking better care of our planet? Well, I'm sure there are many reasons, but we can readily see that disunity is a major contributor. What is more wasteful and damaging than war? Can we stop financially driven overharvesting of rainforests? What can we do about politically motivated practices for waste removal and water treatment? Another factor is materialism, overpackaging, accumulation of things, rapidly passing fashion trends, so-called supersizing of just about everything. Admittedly, sometimes it does seem hopeless, even depressing. The planet is in such a mess. What can I do? 
It's tempting to conclude that the pace of deterioration is faster than the rate of recovery. My optimism is restored through words such as these by the Universal House of Justice. Unity of thought and world undertakings, a concept for which the most idealistic aspirations at the opening of the 20th century lacked even reference points, is also in large measure everywhere apparent in vast programs of social and economic development, humanitarian aid, and concern for protection of the environment of the planet and its oceans. If I believe that we have a future, then I must also believe that the planet will survive and even recover from its present damaged state. I am encouraged by this idea, inspired to keep trying. I can't single-handedly save the planet, but my actions do matter. Beyond developing environmentally sound habits of my own, I can support conservation and cleanup efforts, and I can speak up in situations like I did in the Arboretum. I can encourage others to do the same, having confidence in the impact we can have on each other and how this will help planet Earth. So I'm speaking with Jaylena Palmer, educator and newspaper columnist, and we're talking about her book, Personal Path, Practical Feet, which is a collection of essays, and she just read one from her chapter, Nature and the Environment. Let me pick one more, because just so to remind listeners, you listed out the nine chapters, and you gave me the option to pick one from a, <laughs> from a particular chapter. So there was a chapter about relationships. Yeah, that's what it's called, relationships. Okay, so I'm interested if you could select an essay from relationships. Okay. We're going to read one called Neighbors Near and Far. There's one thing I should mention, just for listeners to understand. Toward the end, I'm going to give a quotation, or sorry, more of a paraphrase from by Baha'u'llah. Baha'u'llah is the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith. And the quotation I'm going to give is from a book he wrote called the Kitab Yaqdas, which just means Book of Laws. Okay, so this essay is called Neighbors Near and Far. I should also say, too, John, who I mentioned's essay, is my husband. John and I returned home from vacation to discover that one of our neighbors was having a party, a boisterous one at that. It was only 9 p.m., and since I knew them to be nice people, and this was apparently a special occasion, I wasn't too concerned. After all, it was in their backyard, and surely the karaoke would lose its novelty and they'd stop, and the lighting would not be needed after the evening became too cool for using their pool, and at some point the DJ would go home and take the loudspeakers with him. And then it was 11 p.m., and the party got louder. As we went to bed, we turned on fans for white noise and put in earplugs. The party became even louder. So around midnight, we moved from our front of house upstairs bedroom to the back of house ground floor family room sofa. At 1 a.m., we carried a mattress from our guest bedroom to the basement, but none of that helped. I'm not sure exactly what time it all ended, but sometime around 3.30 a.m., I did manage to drift off to sleep. When I woke up a few hours later, I felt sleepy and grumpy. Later that day, I saw them cleaning up the yard, and yes, I admit it, I felt resentful. I don't want to dwell further on the situation, those individuals. I doubt that it's unique. And more importantly, within this anecdote are some larger concepts about being neighbors. It seems to me that being good neighbors in the literal sense of house-to-house -house proximity is equivalent to being good neighbors on a larger, even planetary scale. At the local level, we might begin by considering the golden rule. Applying it to the neighborhood, we want everyone to feel safe in their home and amiable with those who live nearby. We might wish for more, but this is a reasonable starting point. My own neighborhood borders on others. At some point, we join a main road, and we can show respect to others in our town by such simple acts as keeping our streets clean and obeying traffic signs. Few people would argue with this. As we enlarge our vision, our town is near other towns. Do we consider how our local zoning laws might affect them? Do we maintain roads that coordinate with theirs? Do we keep air and water clean, not only for ourselves, but also for neighbors and visitors? Are we welcoming in our signage and amenities? This idea keeps growing as towns and cities become regions and states. At a policy level, is everyone who's affected by decisions represented at the table? Do we seek quality of life and security for all? These sorts of questions take us to the world as a whole. From environmental practices to fiscal policies, we are all neighbors. This has always been the case. 
But in these days of worldwide communications and travel, every day brings new insights and increased urgency. The relationship itself calls for reciprocity and balance. I might want my neighbors to be good to me, but just as importantly, I can extend my friendship and well wishes to them. And if they harm me in some way, I need to forgive them, as I would hope they would do if I were the one who would cause the harm. This attitude, taken to a higher level, would foster tolerance and even peace. To be good neighbors means to negotiate rather than fight, to reduce and recycle rather than pollute, to share information rather than hoard it, to trust rather than distrust. I am not so naive as to think this can be done immediately, but I do think this is the vision we need to cultivate. Within his book of laws, the Kitabi Akdas, Baha'u'llah tells us not to prefer oneself to one's neighbor, not to contend with one's neighbor, and not to anger one's neighbor. These few simple ideas applied locally and then extended globally would contribute to the transformation of our world, and then we'd all sleep more peacefully. Now, did I hear you pronounce your name, J. Elena? That's correct. Okay. I finally got the knack of it at the end of the interview here. All right. So I'm speaking with J. Elena Palmer, educator and newspaper columnist, and she's reading from her book, Personal Path, Practical Feet, which is a collection of essays. It might interest you, just a little bit of a coincidence. I was born with the name Judith Ellen. I wasn't born J. Elena. I found growing up and my university years and so forth, people kept telling me, you have the wrong name. And I had so many nicknames, Judith and Judy and Ellen and Dee and Dedith and Jewel. And I had so many nicknames, they really got kind of silly. Well, I mentioned earlier that when I was in Boston, I met the first Baha'i I ever met, a lady named Gracie. Her being a Baha'i maybe wasn't all that significant to me immediately, but we did become really good friends and she could never remember my name. She told me over and over again, you've got the wrong name. So one day I said, Gracie, I'm tired of hearing that. You give me a new name. So (laughs) I told her I had a few rules. I didn't want to lose my initials. I didn't want to go too far from where I started. So she and I went off on a retreat together. And two days later, we had invented the name J. Elena. I lived with it for about six months. Then I went to court and made it legal. And that's been my name for over 30 years, so over 40 years. I'm speaking with J. Elena Palmer educator and newspaper columnist. During the interview, we've been talking about her new book, Personal Path, Practical Feet, which is a collection of essays. So, Jay Alana, thank you so much for sharing your life and your essays. It's very interesting. I hope people will pick up the book and read and enjoy what you have to tell. Thank you very much, Warren. And I have, a, I have an offer to extend to you. If you would ever be willing to have me interview you for your radio show, <laughs> let me know. I would love to ask you an hour's worth of questions. After the interview, Jay Elena realized she wanted to share that she and her husband, John, love to travel and that it's a big part of their lives. I invited her to record her thoughts on that theme. So here is Jay Elena's recording of her thoughts about travel and why it's a big part of her life. While I was still in high school, I began traveling with my Girl Scout troop through much of the U.S., and then later as a university student, backpacking through Europe. I guess I have what some would call itchy feet, because I have traveled in 48 states, including six months in Alaska, and 46 countries. Plus, I've lived in eight states and three countries. I might mention that I met my husband, John, he's from New Zealand, while we were both serving in Haifa, Israel, as volunteers at the world headquarters for the Baha'i Faith. During our eight years there, we realized how much we both love to travel, and it's been a big part of who we are as a couple during our 30 years of marriage. I enjoy travel for many reasons. I love exploring the diversity within our beautiful planet and its people. Sometimes there are challenges and discomforts, especially since we definitely are not luxury travelers. Traveling this way often requires me to keep my sense of humor and to be flexible in my planning. On the other hand, some of our best experiences have been visiting places where daily living is difficult, and we see how overcoming adversity can bring out the best in people. Our world is so beautiful. Why not enjoy it, even as we work to preserve it? I hope you enjoyed that interview with J. Elena Palmer, author of Personal Path, Practical Feet, a collection of her essays capturing her spiritual journey by describing her everyday experiences. I'll have links to her work on the podcast website, abahaiperspective.com, along with this interview and other interviews. You can also find this interview on my YouTube channel, 
A Baha'i Perspective. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
that the light of unity may envelop the whole earth and that the seal the kingdom is God's may be stamped upon the brow of all its peoples. God grant that the Oh, the goal of my desire. 
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.